Hi, Pastor Mike Fabara is here. In August 2024, you're invited to join me on a seven-day cruise to Alaska. Delve into God's Word while taking in the rugged beauty of the Alaskan coast. Visit focalpointministries.org slash Alaska. Well, it's the end of the week, which means it's time to pull up a chair as we prepare for another edition of Ask Pastor Mike. We're tackling a question that a lot of Christians face at this time of year. Should we be observing Lent? Welcome to Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Glad to be here as our teacher, Pastor Mike Fabares, tackles an interesting question from one of your fellow listeners. Unless, of course, the question was submitted by you. Now, coming from various church traditions, you might be accustomed to certain rituals associated with the season leading up to Easter. And today we're talking about the facts surrounding Ash Wednesday and the Lenten season. Is this something all Christians should observe? Well, let's join Executive Director Jay Worden and Pastor Mike Fabares for the answer. Jay? Well, thank you, Dave. I am here with Pastor Mike. And Pastor Mike, next week is Ash Wednesday, and that is the start of Lent. And I have a question from a listener, and they're wondering, is it appropriate for Christians to observe Lent? <laughs> well, I will be as transparent as possible here and be upfront that I'm not a fan. And and not that uh, it's, there's anything inherently wrong with Christians fasting or giving something up. Uh, nothing wrong with that at all. You can do that anytime you'd like uh, throughout the year, throughout the week. But, you know, to look at the tradition of Lent, and maybe a little background would be good here, a couple of sketchy references early in the church, but mostly the medieval church popularized this time of self-deprivation, this fasting leading up to Easter. As you said, it's Ash Wednesday that begins this, where there's a time of penance, which, by the way, the day before is Fat Tuesday, or in French, Mardi Gras, and that's your time to live it up and party and eat as much as you want and do all you can, traditionally, so that you can start your 40 days of fasting before Easter. If you listen to my program here, you probably get a sense that I'm a bit of an iconoclast, which means I'm not real big on extra-biblical ritual forms or ceremonies. And so when I look at something like this and and realize that it's become more of a tradition or a form or a ritual to engage in, as opposed to being prompted in my own heart or my own life to say, I need to seek God in this season and I need to deprive myself of some meals so I can seek the Lord in prayer. I just, I don't want the church and certainly the church leaders to insist upon a a fast. And I think Colossians 2 reminds me that the church doesn't have that authority to come into people's lives or Christians telling one another, hey, you got to you got to deprive yourself of this. You, you can't uh, have that, or you shouldn't be eating this kind of food, or this should be your period of fasting. The Bible doesn't uh, set up that kind of ritual schedule, that traditional ceremonial schedule for us. So I don't think anyone should ever feel pressured to engage in the fast. And since this is a medieval popularized tradition, I certainly don't talk about it in our church, don't recommend that people do it. And yet at the same time, as I started, I will say there's nothing inherently wrong if someone wants to engage in fasting or giving something up on a time that leads up to Easter or any other time. 
Well, Pastor Mike, is there any biblical background for Lent? How did it come about in the uh, in the church? Is it practiced in the early, early church, or was this something that came about yeah. afterwards? Well, there were early references to some fasting before Easter Sunday, and usually it involved in the earliest references that I've been able to research, just the few days, maybe from Good Friday leading into Easter Sunday. But over the centuries, it grew into a 40-day fast, and most people assume it came from Matthew 4 or Luke chapter 4 with the 40 days of Christ fasting in the wilderness, which of course had nothing to do with uh, any time leading up to the resurrection. But that 40 days has been important in a lot of historical accounts in the Bible of things happening over 40 days. And so the 40 days of Christ's fasting became adopted in the medieval church of uh, a time of some kind of deprivation and fasting, at least a partial fast leading up to Easter. So it, it has grown as a tradition, but certainly it isn't biblically based. As a matter of fact, you could make the case that those who tell others that they can't eat certain things or that they have to fast, uh, you could make the case that that's certainly not a, a biblical thing. And certainly no Christian has the authority to come into your life and say, you should not eat this or you should not have that as it relates to just our normal eating of food, although I'm all for fasting. Uh, but usually, as Jesus put it, our fasting should be something done in private, should be something that we choose to do. And then again, and I'd hate to sound like a flip-flopper, but if someone says, well, our church is going to have a fast because we're dealing with a big issue in our church or our city, and, and the leaders want to encourage people to fast together for a particular time, there's nothing wrong with that, nothing inherently wrong with that. But I'd be real careful of adopting some kind of tradition and feeling like this is a, a good and godly thing that God expects from his people. I want to jump back to the subject of Mardi Gras. Isn't it a little hypocritical to be partying it up just yeah. before you're <laughs> going to yeah. on a Lent or a fast? Right. Well, and again, this was part of a Christian culture having a, a celebration or a party grow out of a time when Christians and churches and pastors expected people and called on people to to fast and start their time of penance, their time of repentance on Ash Wednesday. So, of course, today, I mean, you go uh, parts of our country and, and see these huge, uh, lawless, immoral Mardi Gras celebrations. Uh, it has nothing to do with Christianity. It's the antithesis of what we would think is Christian. So, yeah. But it, the reason there is a Mardi Gras is because of the Christian calendar, which grew out of the medieval church, as I've said, starting a fast the very next day on this day of penance and repentance and being sober in our Christian lives that started on Ash Wednesday. Fat Tuesday, that's what Mardi Gras means. And that was fatten yourself up because tomorrow we're going to start fasting. Yeah, certainly what we see on TV regarding Mardi Gras and things of that nature, it looks a little debauched. Yes, of course. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not in favor of Mardi Gras, obviously. And as I started, I'm not a real big fan of uh, uh, any kind of church called for annual fasts. I mean, we don't have that kind of ceremonial ritual schedule. Now, people may write us and say, well, I've been ministered to because I've engaged in Lent and all that, and that's fine. But uh, it's seemingly a trendy thing these days for you know, Protestant churches, evangelical churches, to try and get their churches to engage in some of these rituals and ceremonies. And I'm just saying Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, just to name one passage, clearly would tell us that those things are not to be mandated by churches or church leaders. 
Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. We're going to keep this conversation going by listening to a message that you did called Traditions and Authentic Rules. Luke 6, we see Jesus dealing with the religious people who had expectations and say, if you want to please God, you better do this. And Jesus, of course, knows exactly what it takes to please the Father, and he's not dissuaded, but it certainly is a lesson for us. We want to live for Christ circumspectly, wisely, carefully giving, giving thought to our ways. So I want to learn from these two scenes. In verses 1 through 5, if you've opened to it, you can glance through that. There's one scene about Jesus on the Sabbath. And then in the second scene, verses 6 through 11, there's another scene where he's you know, running into problems with the opinions of the day regarding the Sabbath. Because here is Jesus dealing with the expectations of the day regarding the Sabbath and interacting with what the law of God says regarding the Sabbath. And as we try to live out our Christian life in this era, I want to make sure I rightly understand how to file the Sabbath in my thinking as a theological concept. Verse 1, on a Sabbath, Jesus happened to be going through the grain fields. And while he was, his disciples had plucked some and ate some of the heads of grain, and they would rub them together in their hands, which I suppose, is, as I've learned, is the way you do that. Take the husk off of them, and they'd pop them in their mouths, and they were eating them. Verse 2, some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing, now this be the phrase to underline, what is not lawful, what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Clearly, they look at what Christ and his disciples are doing and say, you're breaking God's law, right? And Jesus answers them with a bit of a curious you know, response. Quoting now from 1 Samuel 1, he, he asks them a rhetorical question because, of course, they're Pharisees. They've read the whole Old Testament. But he says, hey, haven't you read what David did when he was hungry? And he and those who were with him and how he entered the house of God, he took and ate the bread of the presence, which you may be familiar with as the, the show bread, it's also called. That was the 12 loaves they baked and put out there, part of the symbolic worship there in the tabernacle. And as it says, it's only lawful for the priests to eat. It would feed the priest's family, among other things, like the sacrifices. And they would eat it, but only the priests could eat it. He says, do you have any bread? They said, well, we got this. And they gave it to him, and he ate it, and he gave it to his posse. Verse 5. And he said to them, Jesus does, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. A man comes up whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, that is Christ, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Look, he's going to break the Sabbath. We're going to watch for that. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with a withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Okay, two scenes, two Sabbath situations. The one, he's walking through the grain fields, and he is eating with his disciples the heads of grain by rubbing the husks off in their, their hands and eating them. They said, as we've read, you're doing something that's not lawful. Jot these references down, if you would, as I read them for you. Let's start in Exodus 16.23. This is the scene when they're out in the wilderness. We've already gotten the command to rest on the seventh day. By the way, that's what the word Sabbath means. It means to rest, to cease from activity. He's already given the command, God has, through Moses, that everybody's supposed to rest on the seventh day, Saturday. And then some of the details of how to deal with things like, uh, I don't know, cooking. Now think this through. Said no work on the seventh day. Saturday don't work. 
So, okay, we're going to shut down, whether it's harvest time or not, not going to work. We're not cooking meals. We're not gathering, going to the store to get it, and we're not bringing it back and cooking it. Okay? We're eating leftovers on Saturday. That's the picture. Now, if you want a modern equivalent to what Jesus is doing in verse number one, going through the grain fields as he's walking through there, plucking them and eating some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, that's like you stopping by the little stand on, on the road by your house and buying a Snicker bar. Right? Here's my contention, though not every commentator will tell you this. Jesus is not violating the Sabbath according to the law. And you're going to ask, well, wait a minute. Jesus even says it. It was not lawful for anyone but the Levites to eat this. The priests could eat it. David couldn't eat it. Now, why would he bring that up? Not because there's a correspondence to the infraction of the law. Okay? He's enlisting it because what the rabbis of the first century taught about what David did when he got into the, the temple there in Nob and ate the showbread. The rabbis, if you read what they wrote, they believed David was exempt. He was exempt. He did break the law. There's no way around that. But he is not guilty because he is David. The correspondence that's being made is what he's wanting them to do with their knowledge of Christ. That's why he enlists this verse, verse 5. Son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, you're giving David a pass because he's a man after God's own heart and the greatest king of Old Testament Israel. I am the son of man. Question. Does Jesus really need to get circumcised on the eighth day? Does he really need to bring sacrifices? Does he really need to keep the Sabbath? No, why? Because if he is the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days has put all dominion on, then all those things are really symbolic of him. All of those things should serve him. When it comes down to it, Jesus is above this ceremonial law because he's the whole purpose of the ceremonial law. They gave David a pass, but they wouldn't even see Jesus for who he really was, and they weren't willing to cut him any slack at all. When in reality... David did break the law, and he shouldn't have. And Jesus, he wasn't breaking the law, but he could, and he had all authority. What he was breaking, and here's my pastoral point, is what the Pharisees expected of him. The Pharisees, in their mind, thought that he was displeasing the Father because they had expectations, and all you got to do is hear any sermon on this or read any book or any commentary, and they immediately start quoting what all the Pharisees required of people when it came to the Sabbath day. The Bible, oh, it has regulations about the Sabbath. And they don't take long for us to read them and say, you can't do this, you can't do that on the Sabbath. It's a day of ceasing from work. And God has to go and say, listen, listen, you can't work the servants. You can't even work your animals. Everybody rests, including the cook. Everybody rests. In honor of God, that is a sign, as the Bible says, between Israel and, and their God. It's about ceasing from work. Now, when it comes to this, the Pharisees said, well, we've got to answer a lot of questions about what's okay and what's not okay and what is work and what isn't work. And there was in the Talmud, which basically was the codification of all that these Pharisees taught about the Sabbath. I mean, there's, there's over like 24 chapters in the Talmud about the instructions of what you can and can't do. As one irreverent commentator put it, one way, he says, to go raving crazy is to study the Talmud and the book of the Sabbath with all of its rules and regulations as it's what's permissible on the Sabbath and what isn't. And then they said, if you do what we think is wrong on the Sabbath, you know what? We don't think you're godly. Well, now the question is, was it? No, it was their laws. It wasn't their laws. It was their traditions that they made out to be laws. And I don't have time to look at all these, but if you're taking notes, jot them down. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It says that no one can come to you and say, you are not obeying God. You're doing something ungodly because you're not keeping the Sabbath. It says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions about food, drink, regard to festival, new moon, or Sabbath. Those were the shadow of the things to come, but the substance is in Christ. As we learned in chapter 9 of Hebrews, they're obsolete. All the ceremonies obsolete. 
In Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he says, if you want to turn back to those things, they're weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Paul says, neither circumcision, verse 6, nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's nothing. It's a waste of your time. Why? Because in Christ, it's been fulfilled. We are not to go back to these things. These were all about the realities being found in Christ, lived out through faith in Christ. You want to know the exact moment this took place? Matthew 27, 50 and 51. It was the moment he died, yielded up his spirit. When he said to Telestai, when he was dead on a cross, the Bible says the veil of the temple tore. He wrecked the whole thing. The centerpiece of symbolic ceremonial worship made obsolete at the moment of his death. Right? And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, he talks about moral law, like, I don't know, sexual ethics and being faithful to your wife, and he says, listen, if you don't do this, not only will God be the avenger in all these things, but if you disregard what I've told you, you've disregarded God. I mean, if you want to talk about the difference between moral law and the ceremonial law, it couldn't be clearer in the New Testament. The one that we're concerned with is New Testament believers, and that is that we get right with the living God through our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If we get back to the second scene here in Luke 6, it's on another Sabbath, enters the synagogue, he's teaching, man with a withered hand, right hand comes in, scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, all that you know about this passage, because we read it earlier, tell me this, did the Pharisees and scribes want him to heal the man on the Sabbath? Yes or no? Yes, why? So they could bust him. Now, let's just think about this. You got Sabbath keepers in their heart wanting this man to break the Sabbath. Do you see the problem here, the hypocrisy of this? but he knew their thoughts. He knew that's what they wanted. So he says to the man, verse number eight, with a withered hand, hey, you come stand here. You can see the indignant frustration of Christ. And he rose and he stood there and he said, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Now that's what he wanted to do to the man with a withered hand. Not only prove his credentials as he's doing throughout the synagogues in Galilee, but he wants to do good to this man. It's a good thing. He says now in the, the second couplet, he says, is it lawful to save life or destroy it? You don't need you know, to have all your limbs working to live life. He's not saving a life here. But he uses the second couplet because in reality what's happening is they are there on the Sabbath plotting to destroy Christ. Look at him expose their motive. Here's what he says. You're here on the Sabbath not only wanting me to break the Sabbath, but look at your own heart. You come here saying you're keeping the law of God, but in your heart you've come here to destroy a person. I'm trying to speak a word and heal the person, and you're trying to condemn me for that. Do you see the hypocrisy in this? The hypocrisy is they're there checking a box that they're Sabbath keepers doing what God wants them to do, when in their heart they're doing something terrible. They're plotting to kill a man who's simply speaking a word. If you're talking about regulations from the law of Moses about healing, we have none. Why? Because it's a miracle, because people don't do this. Is it much work anyway for Christ to speak a word and heal the man? Say, stretch out your hand. Here's what's happening. You've got men who are on the outside look like they're keeping the laws of God. And in fact, I suppose on the outside they were, but on the inside they weren't. Because we can be something on the outside and something else on the inside. Like the old story I often tell about the kid in class told to sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. Finally, disgruntled and frustrated and defiant, the kid sits down and tells the teacher, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Now you say, well, I don't think that's happening in my life. Let me show you a passage. Mark chapter 7. With this, we'll wrap it up. Mark 7. Not only are they taking the, the teachings and commands of people and putting it on par with the teachings and doctrines of God, it's worse than that. They're raising those as a cover for evil behavior. Look at how he puts it beginning in verse 8. 
When it comes to these two things, it's not only that you equate them and keep them equal, it's that you're actually leaving the commandment of God, Mark 7, verse 8, and holding to the tradition of men. And he said this, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, for instance, honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles his father and mother, surely put to death. Clearly those commands were having you be favorable and kind to your parents. That's the point of the command, and that's what they tell you to do. But you say, listen, I got a tradition here and another law, and what we'll do is we'll say if a man has property or money and he can help his father and mother, but he says to them, listen, I can't do it because whatever would have been gained, if I gave you that, I've marked it Corbin, which is a word, as Mark explains, which, which means given to God. I've kind of put an X on that for God. I've set the money aside for God. Then you no longer permit the man to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you handed down, and many such things you do. You do something that gives an appearance of godliness, but in many ways you're doing that while your heart's moving in the opposite direction. And when it comes to this, the Bible says, honor your parents, and look at this one practice where you'd say, well, I really don't want to honor my parents. And because I don't want to honor my parents, I've come up with a way to justify not honoring my parents by putting some kind of thing here that looks very religious, and that is, I've set the money aside for the Lord. I can't give it to you. You're really breaking the law while you're giving the appearance that you're keeping the law. That's kind of hypocrisy God has just had enough of. As a matter of fact, the Sermon on the Mount that's recorded there in Matthew chapter 5 is filled with those things. He says, you may be checking the box and you may never have murdered anybody. You have no rap sheet. And yet in your heart, you harbor bitterness toward them. When you hate them and call them names, the Bible says, really, you're moving in this direction toward your neighbor when the Bible says, love your neighbor and should be moving in this direction. When it comes to adultery, hey, fantastic, faithful to your wife. You haven't committed adultery. That's supposed to lead you to fidelity and, and there's oneness in your marriage, but instead you're moving in your heart in the opposite direction with a lust-filled heart. You're keeping the law on the outside, but on the inside, your heart's running the other direction. Oaths, right? Bible says that the oaths, yeah, to make an oath, make a commitment, do all that. Here, but here's the thing, you're using that to say, it only is applicable and my words are only binding when I'm making an oath, and I can then do the opposite. I can be untrustworthy, and I can do something that really isn't real, it's not true, it's deceptive, because I didn't make an oath. God lists all those kinds of things and says, look at what you're doing. You're keeping the law on the outside, or at least you think you are, and maybe someone sees that you are, but on the inside, your heart's running the other direction. Let that be the pattern for what you do all week. If you're going to tell the truth, I'm telling the truth inside and out. If you're going to be faithful to your spouse, faithful to your spouse inside and out. If you're going to deal with the issues at work and deal with the integrity that the Bible asks for, inside and out. Don't let your heart be moving in the opposite direction. You make sure this is all something that's authentic, non-hypocritical. and Make that a pattern for the rest of your week. You're listening to Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares, and the message you just heard is titled, Traditions and Authentic Rules Discernment. To hear the complete uncut version, or to view the message notes, go to focalpointradio.org. It can be so easy to just go with the flow of what others are doing or expecting of you, but God wants us to be students of His Word, learning to discern truth from error and biblical commands from human opinions. And that's part of our mission at Focal Point. We're here to equip you and train you so you won't be led astray by various winds of doctrine. But we can only fulfill that mission when friends like you support us. To help us expand our reach, please call and donate. Our number is 888-320-5885 or go to focalpointradio.org. And to say thanks for your gift, we'll send you an insightful book by beloved pastor A.W. Tozer. It's a highly rated collection of his classic sermons titled, Men Who Met God. 
Discover more about several biblical figures who had the tremendous experience of walking and communing with God. It's our gift to you when you give generously to Focal Point. Get in touch today by calling 888-320-5885 or contact us online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer to send your donation and request by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. And by the way, if you've never contacted us before, we have a gift for you. Call and request a pamphlet called The Twelve Disciples. We'd love to send it your way. Just call 888-320-5885. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy, so glad to have you with us. And be sure to come back again next time as we continue exploring God's Word right here on Focal Point. program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.